Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My name is Crystal, and I am the host of Stories from Palestine podcast and also a licensed tour guide by the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism. Together with my colleague Salim, we are organizing three 10-day programs this year to discover Palestine. There is still space in the upcoming program mid-March and also in June and October. We travel around the West Bank, Jerusalem and Jaffa with small groups, maximum 10 people. We provide historical background, we introduce you to the Palestinian heritage, and we make sure that you get to meet a lot of locals. We stay in family-run hotels, and we also spend two nights with Palestinian families. We do some short hikes, easy hikes, and during the October program, you can also join a day of olive harvesting. If you are interested, then check out our website for more information. I will ask Roberto if he can add a link to the show notes of the podcast, but you can also write it down. It is storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Zachary Foster. Zachary is no longer an academic. He's currently the director of product at academia.edu, which we may say is a, a sort of a para-academic somehow. Uh, nevertheless, he produced a very good amount of academic works, mostly articles. In fact, most of his works have been published uh, by Jerusalem Quarterly and other important uh, uh, Middle Eastern studies journals, mostly discussing Jerusalem and Palestine in the period of World War I, but his uh, PhD thesis is very much about uh, Palestine and the invention of Palestine, which will be uh, a major topic we're going to discuss later. But first of all, Zachary, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Zachary, 
if I look at your sort of resume on um, LinkedIn or Academia, in fact, uh, which is the website you're working for, there's something that uh, kind of like uh, got my attention. Before you started your academic path, you, in fact, worked as a tourist guide in Jerusalem. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, that period in your life and uh, what entailed to take uh, tourists for, shall we say, alternative tours around Jerusalem? Thanks for that question, Roberto. And I will confess, first of all, that I was living in Jerusalem in 2007 and 8 and 9. So we're talking, what's that, 13, 14, 15 years ago. So this is some some number of years ago. So let me just preface everything I'm about to say with the fact that um, I haven't done this in a long time. But when I first moved to Jerusalem in 2008, I started volunteering with an organization called ICAD, the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions. And I was volunteering with them for a number of months. And this entailed re- receiving alerts whenever there were home demolitions. And we would, we would rush to the uh, site of the demolition, do our best to prevent the demolition. In reality, that never happened. In reality, what that meant was trying to show solidarity with the families who were the victims of the home demolition. It meant documenting what was happening. It meant spreading the word about what was happening, raising awareness about the cruelty and viciousness with which the Israeli uh, military police destroyed people's homes for having committed the crime of being born Palestinian in Jerusalem. Because as you all know, the municipality of Jerusalem has been hell-bent on pushing out its Palestinian residents since 1967. It started almost immediately after Israel conquered uh, Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank and, and other parts of Palestine in 1967 and has been on a, um, a mission to Judaize uh, Jerusalem to push out the Palestinian residents of the city. Um, and, and, and so the, the, the mission of this organization that I was volunteering for uh, was to um, was to help Palestinians who are being victims of these policies of Judaization and ethnic cleansing, and so that meant helping Palestinians rebuild after they had after their homes had been demolished. It it, it meant showing solidarity and documenting uh, um, the the demolitions themselves. And so in that capacity, uh, the the organization also led tours in East Jerusalem, going around parts of the uh, of the city. Uh, Wadi al-Joz, uh, Ras al-Lamud, uh, Sheikh Jarrah, uh, Jabal Mukabbar, and many, many other parts of uh, Isawiya and many, many other neighborhoods of the city. And, 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 and showing people what was happening on the ground, showing people the differences in the, the allocation of the, of the Jerusalem municipality budget between East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, the dramatic differences in the, the treatment um, in terms of the number of health clinics in East Jerusalem versus West Jerusalem, in terms of public parks, in terms of public infrastructure, roads, sewage, uh, uh, and basically anything that involved public money being spent in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and so the point of these tours was to really show on the ground, not just the, uh, um, n- not just this disparity in, in the funds being allocated to East Jerusalem, but also going to the home, the sites of the home demolitions themselves and talking about why these people were, were homes were demolished, going to the Israeli Jewish settlements inside East Jerusalem and talking uh, about how they get so much public funding, how they get these beautiful uh, public parks and beautiful swimming pools. 
And and so this was really the goal of these tours was to expose a side of Jerusalem that your average tourist or average pilgrim or average traveler to Jerusalem wouldn't have ordinarily seen if they're just going to the holy sites and the, and seeing the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Western Wall and whatever else. Can I ask you how visitors reacted to what you were showing to them? I think most of the visitors were shocked. I think maybe uh, uh, shocked, but not surprised. Um, shocked because of how dramatic the disparities are. I mean, just to rattle off um, a couple uh, uh, of statistics, which I'm sure you're quite familiar with, but perhaps some of the listeners w- would benefit from. Uh, so, so Jerusalem, something like 35 to 40 percent of Jerusalem is Palestinian. OK, and since the early 2000s, the official stated position of the Jerusalem municipality was to never let the percentage of the population of Jerusalem exceed 40 percent. That was a danger zone. And so if you are a Palestinian living in Jerusalem today, you are an existential threat to the Jerusalem municipality. And, and moreover, you're an existential your very existence. The fact that you are a living and breathing human being on planet Earth is in endangering the municipality of Jerusalem according to its own self-image and according to its own vision and goals for its own future. And so of the 1,000 public parks uh, in, uh, so of the, uh, uh, for example, just to, to, just to rattle off a few numbers, you know, 1,000 public parks in, 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 in West Jerusalem, 45 in East Jerusalem, okay? So 34, 35 to 40% of the population gets 4% of the parks. West Jerusalem has 36 swimming pools. East Jerusalem has zero. West Jerusalem has 26 libraries. East Jerusalem has two. 2% of the municipal cultural budget goes to East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem has fewer post offices, fewer health clinics. You can, you know, there was one report in Haaretz where uh, the Haaretz journalist was standing outside of, um, one, there, there's a, an office that helps uh, people claim unemployment benefits. Um, you know, at 4.30 a.m., there is a line outside the office in East Jerusalem, okay? So this is the life of East Jerusalem. It's, you're being, uh, classrooms, Jerusalem, uh, classrooms. By the way, there are not enough classrooms in East Jerusalem, there are literally a shortage of classrooms. Why? Because they can't build. There's no building permits. Because when Israel uh, uh, annexed East Jerusalem in 1967, what it did was it encircled all of the built-up areas around uh, in the built-up areas in East Jerusalem. You know, Ras Lamur, the old city, uh, Sheikh Jarrah, Esawiyah. They basically drew lines around the pre-existing built-up areas and said, you can only build within those areas. All the open areas, all of the unbuilt-on areas, they were declared green zones. They were declared environmental safety zones. They were declared industrial zones. They were slated for Jewish settlement. Uh, so basically, Palestinians cannot build. They cannot build anywhere in East Jerusalem. Something like 95 plus percent of building permits are denied. Uh, uh, building permit applications are denied to Jerusalem's Palestinian residents. So Palestinians are constricted and confined to these already built-up areas pre-67. They're also, by the way, not given Israeli citizenship. They have to apply for Israeli citizenship, and they're regularly denied that. It's an extremely long and arduous process. Talk to any Palestinian who's actually tried to obtain citizenship. It's incredibly difficult. Why? Because Israel doesn't want these people to be citizens of the state of Israel. They want them to leave. They want them to leave Jerusalem. Go to the West Bank. Go to Jordan. Go to the United States. Just get out of Jerusalem. You are not welcome there. Your presence is an existential threat to the state of Israel. Um, I can't even remember your question. At this point, I'm just ranting, Roberto. You you are ranting a little bit, but uh, I guess visitors, uh, you know, 
I'm sure they learned a lot when you were taking them around about the condition of uh, East Jerusalemites, and particularly the daunting questions of demolishing houses, sometimes only on just uh, the pretext to be slightly connected to a family of an individual who may or may not be, in fact, a terrorist. So there is all of this question about, uh, you know, the discrimination of demolishing houses. But I want to move to the question of uh, your academic work, because in 2017, so not so long ago, really, you completed your PhD dissertation for Princeton uh, called The Invention of Palestine. And I'm just quoting here from, from your page. Palestine exists in our minds, not in nature. If Palestine doesn't exist, why do we identify with it? We identify with Palestine first because it has a name. In fact, we only identify with places we've named. Thanks for uh, reading off that little bit from the abstract of my uh, dissertation, if I'm not wrong. Um, you're absolutely right. I think that um, I was fascinated by the, the name, the word Palestine itself, the name, the idea, the concept. Because if you ask a physicist or if you ask a biologist or a topologist or a hydrologist or a chemist, there is no such thing as Palestine. Um, you cannot study Palestine uh, as a physical aspect of the natural or chemical or biological world, because it doesn't exist. A physicist cannot tell you what Palestine is. Only a historian and a humanist and a social scientist can tell you what Palestine is, because it's an invention that human beings made up. We just made it up. We just said, hey, look, there's this place, and let's call it Palestine. And, and so the question I have a historian is, how is it that in 2023, Millions of people around the world identify as Palestinian. When did they start to do that? What were the historical processes and developments that led people to say, I am a Palestinian, I identify with Palestine. Not only do I identify with Palestine, but I love Palestine. I print Palestine on my t-shirts. I sing the Palestinian national anthem. I wave the Palestinian flag. And I'm willing to even die fighting in the name of Palestine. How did that happen, Roberto, if this is a completely made-up idea? That is the, the question that I'm trying to get at in my dissertation. Uh, the, really, the origins of, of, of the, the idea of this dissertation come from having encountered so, so much propaganda and so many myths growing up in a Jewish community exposed to Zionist propaganda and Zionist mythology. And as you, you may be familiar with, if you were exposed to this literature, this mythology, this propaganda, you would believe that there never had been a place called Palestine in history. In fact, it was always part of Syria. In fact, the Palestinians themselves, they actually had always called themselves Syrians or, or Arabs. They never called themselves Palestinians until Yasser Arafat came around in the 1960s and convinced everyone they were Palestinians. Um, and so that's the narrative that you would have been raised with if you were raised in a Jewish community like the one that I was raised in. And so when I encountered the historian's version of, of Palestine history and the history of the Palestinians, rather than the mythologists or the propagandists version of the history of Palestine and the Palestinians, I was in complete shock. I was like, wait, hold on one sec. You're telling me everything I was raised with was nonsense? This is, this is mind-blowing. And as somebody who has an open mind and as someone who's very curious, I wanted to dig deeper. I wanted to find out the truth behind these people calling themselves Palestinians. What, what was their real history? And it turns out, if you want to study the origins of a Palestinian identity, there's actually a very rigorous 
a very empirical way of doing that. You go into the historical record and look for the word Philistine or Philistine or Philistine in the historical record. And you can do this in a very systematic, very methodical way, which is exactly what I did for my research. And so I asked myself, okay, let's just leave aside the polemics and try and, and try and understand when was this word used in history, starting from the etymological history. Let's just look at the sources and try and make sense of who used this word, when, and why. And, and, and that is really the starting point of my dissertation. And so I start in the ancient world and, and try to understand when people, when this word first came into the historical record and then how it got from the ancient sources of Egyptian, uh, of Egyptian hieroglyphics and Assyrian and ancient Hebrew, how it got from those languages to Latin and Greek, and then how it got from Latin and Greek into Arabic. And then how it got from Arabic to all the modern uh, Eastern and Western languages and, and, and when it was popular in Arabic and when it became less popular in Arabic. And then when did people start to use the term uh, Philistini, Palestinian, and Philistinian, the plural, the Palestinians? When did those terms start to get used in Arabic? And the, the, the answer that I settle on is the late 19th century. And I'm happy to pick up any of those threads because I know, you know, I covered a lot of history in just a very short amount of time. So feel free to, uh, you know, uh, to double click on anything that you want to talk uh, in more greater detail about. I want to start talking about something that's uh, uh, about in, that is in your thesis. Now, first of all, your thesis was not published as a book, but I remember... Uh, clearly that it received a lot of attention and perhaps you can speak about it. But there's one one point at the very beginning, which is uh, very much about the question, who cares about Palestine? And I remember you talking about, uh, you know, a pilot, uh, I think it was Air France or Alitalia, one of them, uh, you know, saying welcome to Israel-Palestine and eventually got fired because there was a campaign against uh, uh, Air France, probably. And uh, that kind of like reminded me of the question of, uh, you know, who cares about Palestine, really? Is that only Palestinians? Or, as you, as you said earlier, you know, there's a lot of people outside Palestine that care about Palestine. And why do you think is so? Yeah, it's such a good question. So, you're absolutely right. The, the first few pages of chapter one of my dissertation, if I'm not wrong, are getting at the history of the controversy over this word, right? Because... As you point out, uh, th there were a number of controversies in the 2000s and the 2010s, and these controversies continue to the present day. There's almost uh, th there's a new controversy every month or every two or three months. It's, it's honestly hard to keep track of them at this point. But uh, the anecdote that you referenced, you had multiple anecdotes like this, by the way, not just one, where you had, I believe, an Air France pilot, an Alitalia pilot, and I believe... Even another pilot, uh, maybe it was United Airlines, I forget now which airline, basically when they land in, in Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, they say, welcome to Palestine or welcome to Israel-Palestine, which is the more neutral version of that. And so you have all of these pilots saying, welcome to Palestine or welcome to Israel-Palestine, and a couple of them got fired. Now, let me ask you this question, Roberto. Should you lose your job for saying, welcome to Palestine? By the way, there's a rapper based out of the UK who had a, a Chance the Rapper, very popular rapper, who has a song where he talks about Palestine through, throughout the song. And when the BBC was playing that song on, uh, on the BBC, they bleeped out the word Palestine as if it was a curse word. When Mark Lamont said on CNN, free Palestine from the river to the sea, he got fired. When the Bank of Palestine, uh, what, it, based out of Gaza, 
was trying to reopen after it had been closed by the Israeli military in 1967, and it was slated to reopen. The Israeli military said, the only way you can reopen is if you change your name. You're not allowed to use the name Palestine in the name of your bank. Well, let me ask you something about the word Palestine. Is the word Palestine dangerous? Palestine, 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 Palestine. Alert! You have 10 seconds to find shelter to the nearest cover before you get hit in the face by my saliva. Okay, Palestine is not a dangerous word, Roberto, okay? But it's perceived to be a threat to the state of Israel. Why is that? Why does the Israeli military, why does your average Israeli, by the way, why does your average Jewish American feel uncomfortable and feel attacked when they hear the word Palestine? Well, I think the answer is quite simple. And it's because the state of Israel and the Jewish people who support the state of Israel are hell-bent on erasing any trace that there was ever a Palestinian people living in the land of Palestine before the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. And that is ultimately the reason why all of these people and the state of Israel are hell-bent on erasing the word Palestine from memory and from view is because they just cannot tolerate the fact that there was a people here before they showed up and that their existence, the name Palestine, the existence of the Palestinian people is a continual reminder and a continual source of remembering that the project of Zionism was built on top of the ruins of another people. And so that's the reason why the word Palestine is controversial and why these Alitalia pilots are getting fired when they say, welcome to Palestine. Let me ask you something. If you use the word Eretz Israel, this is another concept that has been in existence for millennia, I guess. And so I was wondering if you see Palestine and Eretz Israel sort of clash with each other, or is there a way these two can actually... I don't want to use the word coexist lightly, but can they overlap with each other? I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm an optimist, Roberto. I, I do believe that uh, for both the safety and security of all Israelis and all Palestinians, I do believe a rapprochement is necessary. I do believe that both peoples, all people between the river and the sea, for various historical reasons that are very complex and impossible to disentangle and undo and unravel, are destined to live together. And there's nothing you or I or any Israeli or any Palestinian can do to change that. It's fata accompli. It's, it's, we're 122 years to, late to unravel what has happened. We cannot undo the past, but we can look to the future and look to ask ourselves, how can we live in a world where everyone between the river and the sea can have lead a prosperous and safe and secure life? And ultimately, I think the way to do that is through reproachment. It's for Israelis to say, no, this land is not called Israel. There are people here who call it Palestine. And for Palestinians to say the same thing about Israelis and to say, look, these people, regardless of how they got here, regardless of whether the, the, the way in which they got here was justified or the way in which they came to power was justified, that's all irrelevant at this point. They are here and they're not going anywhere. And the way to, I think, live side by side in, in, in peace and security for everyone between the river and the sea is for Israelis to say, look, this place is also called Palestinian. This place is also called Palestine. And for the Palestinians to say the same thing. And, and, and that's not because that's just or that's fair or that's right. 
But that's, the, in my opinion, the only way forward. And so, yeah, I wish everyone called it Israel-Palestine or Palestine-Israel, or maybe we take a pledge out of Muammar uh, Gaddafi's playbook and call it Israelstein or Pal-Israel, or we could come up with all kinds of iterations. And by the way, Roberto, that is my personal opinion, and I respect people who disagree with me. But I, I do think that is ultimately the only way I see long-term that we can have a peaceful and uh, prosperous Israel-Palestine uh, uh, in, in the Middle East. And I appreciate the fact that you use the word long term, because if we think about the current political situation in Israel in particular, and obviously this uh, uh, current right wing government that certainly is based on the motto Palestine never existed and never will, it's very hard to see a near future moving towards that direction. But uh, it feels more it's moving towards a, a much more conflictual one than a one of rapprochement and reconciliation. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you on that. I think that I think that I'd rather be effective than right. I think that it's easy to be right and hard to be effective. I think standing from the sidelines, I think being an activist, I think being an advocate, a content creator, a podcaster, it's easy to stand on a high horse and say, this is how the world should be. Guess what? It's much, much, much harder to be in a position of power and be in a position where you can actually change things because that requires compromise. That requires bringing people together. And in order to make a compromise, in order to bring people together, sides that are opposing in every possible imaginable way, you got to make compromises. And I think one compromise that needs to be made is in the names, in the names people use. And that comes for, from both sides. Both the Israelis and Palestinians do need to compromise on that. And by the way, um, the Palestinians have already compromised, by the way. They call the place Israel. You know, I think it's time for the Israelis to start to acknowledge, hey, listen, we need to start to call this place Palestine. And by the way, I was uh, involved with the New Israel Fund for uh, a number of years. And I said, New Israel Fund, guess how to make your organization more effective? more inclusive. Guess how to build bridges with the people you absolutely need in Israel-Palestine to build bridges with. And that's the Palestinian community inside Israel. You cannot build a left-wing coalition in Israel without the Palestinians. It's impossible. They're simply too important. You need to bring them in. You need to include them in your coalition or else you're going to be left with merits, which doesn't even make the Israeli, doesn't even literally have enough, doesn't even make the Knesset. You're going to have Avodah, which is dead. And then the Israeli left is going to be cons consist of war criminals who brag about bombing Gaza back to the Stone Age. That is the Israeli left today. Why? Because they refuse to include the Palestinians. And so the New Israel Fund and the Israeli left if they have any hope of having any influence in Israeli society in the future, they absolutely need to come to terms with the fact that the Palestinian people are not going away and they need to be reconciled with. And that includes recognizing the name Palestine, first and foremost. And by the way, that is that is just the beginning. That is that, that's sort of acknowledging the reality in order to be able to move forward and make progress. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we talk about your other academic work, particularly about Palestine during the period of World War I, I want to engage with you in a very brief uh, duel, I would say, about uh, cultural appropriation. In fact, I realized when I was browsing your PhD thesis that you made reference to a killer Bolognese. And uh, I mean, I was just curious about who's making this uh, uh, killer ragu, Bolognese sauce, uh, that you that deserve to be mentioned in your PhD thesis. And I, you know, sort of uh, uh, here challenging whoever this may, person may be. Avevo un ex moroso italiano per, per dieci anni, per, per sapere. Adesso sto imparando spagnolo, così mi spagnolo arriva il mio italiano. Però se vuoi sapere, mi, mi ex moroso italiana. So um, I, I, uh, I can translate that to English for the listeners, or we can just keep it in Italian between me and you. I, I guess we can just keep it in Italian and it's perfectly fine. So let, let me bring to you our uh, second part, uh, uh, sort of your, your academic work, uh, which is... Uh, related to the period of World War I. You published a couple of very important articles about uh, the famine that hit Palestine during the period of World War I. And I had the chance to talk about it with Salim Tamari and Issam Nassar, but I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more, uh, particularly focusing on your work, you know, what happens and how did Palestinians uh, broadly define, because obviously we're talking about a period where Palestinians meant to be a Christian, a Jew, or a Muslim, a Druze, or anybody that literally lived in Palestine. And how did they react to this uh, tremendous uh, set of circumstances, the war and famine? World War I was one of the most consequential periods in the history of Palestine, uh, certainly the modern history of Palestine, perhaps the history of all of Palestine throughout all times, uh, time periods. Something like a third um, maybe a fourth. We uh, Anyone's guess as to the exact percentage, uh, but something like 20-30% of the population of Palestine was wiped out um, from starvation and more so starvation-related diseases like typhus. And uh, it, it's a very long story, and there's a lot to say about it. But to summarize a tremendous uh, amount of history in a very short 
period of uh, uh, to summarize this complex history. What happened over the course of the late 19th and early 20th century was Palestine was getting incorporated into the global capitalist world market. What that meant was around Jaffa, you had lots, dozens of uh, of business owners building huge orange groves that were dependent on the exports uh, industry to Europe and abroad. And 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 by the way, those. Orange groves gave rise to thousands and thousands of laborers and new jobs. Uh, and then in Jaffa, you have th- this new port. And Haifa, the port is growing massively to export those oranges abroad. Not just oranges, of course, but in Gaza, you had a huge wheat and barley industry that was booming uh, based on the export of barley to 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 the British uh, uh, beer industry. You had cotton that was being exported from Nablus and olive oil and, and soap that was being exported from Nablus. Uh, I, I, and then you, of course, have the tourism industry, which is booming, which I'm you're the real expert there, not me. But by the... Uh, uh, by the eve of World War, World War I, you had tens of thousands, as many as forty to 50,000 tourists visiting Palestine on the eve of World War I. You had the remittance economy. You had dozens, if not hundreds, of missionary schools opened throughout all of Palestine. Guess what? Those missionaries provided subventions to students and stipends to students to study in those schools. So you had this booming economy based on exports, Uh, based on uh, missionary activity, uh, based on tourism, and it's booming. And guess what happens on the eve of World War I? That entire economy disappears overnight. The banks close. People can no longer withdraw money from banks. Well, guess what happens when you can't withdraw money from banks? You've been returned to the Stone Age. You're now living in a barter economy. And so in November 1914, the banks shut down. All the foreigners pack up and leave. The Ottomans throw in their lot tragically with the Germans. And by 19, by early 1915, the uh, Allied powers have blockaded the eastern Mediterranean coast. And so on the eve of the worst economic catastrophe in all of Palestinian history, then come the locusts. And in March 1915, swarms of locusts invade the region. Swarms so big that were described by contemporaries as the by elders who had lived through many, many locust attacks as the single worst locust attack they had ever witnessed. And so from March 1915 until the following year, a full calendar year, more than 12 months, you had repeated incursions of locusts such that in the fall, sorry, excuse me, in the, the winter of 1915, something like 10 to 15 percent of the winter crop of wheat and barley was destroyed. And then in the spring and summer uh, of 1915, something like anywhere from six, to, and the estimates vary, and it's very hard to get very precise details, but the estimates are somewhere between 60 to 100% of the fruits and the vegetables uh, and the legumes, the chickpeas and the olives and the olive oil. Remember, the, the peasant diet was first and foremost based on olives and olive oil. And guess what happened to the olives and the olive groves come November 1915? They were wiped out. And so after the economy was brought to a standstill by the war and by the blockade, then came the locust attack, which wiped out the source of food for the regions 
inhabitants. On top of all that, you had the army requisitions. You had soldiers going from door to door requisitioning animals, requisitioning food, requisitioning pots and pans. Then you had the loss of labor. The entire male population was conscripted. And so, and then you had the monopolization of the rail traffic. And so if you wanted a rail car, if you, how do you get wheat from the places of its cultivation to the places of its consumption? You couldn't. You had to bribe an Ottoman soldier 10 times what the pre-war cost of that rail car was, uh, from something like 20 lira to something like 200 lira to ship a container of wheat on a railway in Ottoman Syria in 1916. And so as a result of all of these calamities, you had the worst famine in probably the history of Palestine, certainly in the last many hundreds of years, if not ever. And so it's, it was a tra tragic, tragic uh, event that is not really fully grasped, even by specialists, uh, historians of the period, let alone lay people. And, and so it's, it's basically been forgotten, I would say. The average person, uh, the average Palestinian, the average Israeli just has no idea, has no idea uh, of the of the calamity and the catastrophe, and I, I don't know whether that's because of shame or whether that's uh, some kind of intentional will to forget what happened. Um, but uh, it, it it was it was a tremendous tragedy that today is mostly forgotten. It is indeed forgotten. But what was interesting is that uh, Salim Tamari, when he published his book The Year of the Locust, uh, reminded us that actually people that lived throughout the war remember the war more in terms of the invasion of locust and famine, then, then effectively for the war itself. So what it transpires is that people related uh, to this trauma and not, not the war itself, because this is what really they experienced uh, on a daily basis. And, and I was wondering if in your you know, research, perhaps you came up with a, you know, the material suggesting that uh, potentially uh, at an event like this, uh, you know, in a trauma, uh, like the invasion of locusts and famine, may have strengthened uh, political and social identities to be a Palestinian or even to be a Zionist? That's a fantastic question. And that history has yet to be written, or perhaps it has been written and I'm not familiar with it, which is entirely possible. But uh, you are absolutely correct to point out that tragedy brings people together. Famine, locust attacks. Guess what? The locusts do not discriminate between Palestinians and Muslims and Jews and Christians. The locusts do not care what the color of your skin is or what God you pray to. They are, have a voracious appetite and they will eat your crops and your olive groves no matter who you are or what or, 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 or what your ethnic or religious or national affiliation is. And so there are many anecdotes, by the way, of Palestinians joining Jews during the war years. Palestinians helping a Jews protect their crops. Jews helping Palestinians protect their crops. Jews and Palestinians going out to the fields together to bang, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 metal against metal to try and scare away the locusts with the sounds, to try and erect sheets of metal in the sands, to try and prevent the locusts uh, from crawling towards the settled regions where you had large uh, cultivated areas. So you do have those anecdotes. And in fact, I even published a uh, an op-ed in Haaretz a couple of years ago with Siraj Asi, uh, where we talked about some of these anecdotes that we were able to uncover in the literature. So folks uh, are curious, they can... They can look to that op-ed, which is just a you know five hundred thousand word piece. But, but yes, you're absolutely right. There, there, there are incidents, and I'm curious to hear, Roberto, what your experiences have been because you're the real expert here. You tell me what. How would you answer that question? You know, I, I have the same uh, kind of uh, uh, 
idea that obviously, you know, traumatic event brings people together. But uh, I'm not entirely sure to what extent then they shaped uh, sort of the future. I mean, they had this moment uh, where obviously, as you said, you know, uh, locals don't uh, discriminate. They attack every every single individual. They don't look at crops and say, well, we're going to attack these ones because they are owned by Jews or we're going to attack the others because they're owned by local Palestinians. But nevertheless, I, I start thinking that despite the trauma is shared by all Palestinians, regardless of their religious affiliations, eventually politicizations, unfolding of events, kind of let them drop this memory. And, uh, you know, the, the traumatic experience which brought them together simply dissipated. And, and I think this is also the reason why people no longer remember that. It's just gone, despite the fact that it had a tremendous impact over Palestine. And, and again, invasion of locusts are still uh, an occurrence. They do happen. And so, uh, you know, this is not something that was unusual. Certainly what was unusual is that it, it occurred at the same time of, you know, the, obviously the, the unfolding war events, including the fact that the Ottomans were not really providing any sort of a means of relief, uh, you know, during this period of time. So you had the exacerbation of uh, uh, blockades by the Allies, uh, famine, which was already caused by uh, war events, and, and of course, uh, mobilization of resources, plus the locust. And that made me think that as much as this was uh, traumatic and brought people together, politics, identitarian politics, became more powerful and potent than trauma itself. Uh, but this is, again, my, my view over you know this particular period of time. Look, the war was so uh, overshadowed by the political events that accompany it. The declaration, the Balfour Declaration, obviously, uh, <clears throat> the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the promise to Sharif Hussein of Mecca, and so the, the war and the Arab revolt, obviously. So you have these incredibly important political events that are par that are happening in parallel to these very traumatic social events of the of the famine and of the requisitions and of disease um, and of trauma. And so, but and so, what is remembered is not the trauma; it's it's the politics. And for better or worse, um, that seems to be what the war is remembered by. Uh, I see that we're becoming cynical historians here. So I, I want to move to a, a couple of questions I have about two cities. So in 2016, you wrote an article about Ramla. And I must admit that after reading your article, uh, I was in Israel back then, I was in Beersheba, I actually visited Ramla for the first time. Because I, I obviously knew where Ramla was and is. Uh, many times, you know, by train, uh, I obviously, you have to go through Ramla. But I never took the time to actually stop. And then all of a sudden, your article hit me, and I realized that Ramallah was not just this, uh, I'm going to use the word shanty town because that's what it looks like uh, nowadays. But it had a very important uh, historical past. And in fact, you know, wandering around, you have uh, the Crusader walls and the buildings and obviously Christian churches all around. But you made the point that actually Ramla was more central to Palestine than Jerusalem. And this is a very curious uh, argument. In part, I made that argument uh, to catalyze the conversation. In part, I made the argument to attract 
readers to the article. In part, I made the argument to create some buzz, to create a bit of controversy, which I'm not afraid to do. And in fact, which I quite like doing. But look, ultimately, I was trying to catalyze a conversation, which is to say that for the first 400 years of Islamic rule and Arab rule in Palestine, it is my view that, I mean, by the way, I don't even think this is controversial. I think this would be accepted by almost any historian of Palestine for those first 400 years. But it's very clear to me, at least, that the center of the geographical, the economic, and political center of Palestine was not Jerusalem, it was Ramla. And and, and by the way, I mean, I'm just stating facts at this point. I'll get to the controversy in a minute. But Ramla was, in fact, the political capital of Jund, Jund Philistine, uh, which was a, a district in the early Umayyad Caliphate for hundreds of years. And, and so as a result of it being, by the way, it was the seat of the caliphate. Uh, uh, for 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 a number of decades. So not only was it the political capital of Palestine, but it was actually the seat of the caliphate of the most uh, important and largest empire in the entire world at the time. Okay, so Ramla was very important politically. And then as a result of its political importance, it also attracted... <clears throat> Uh, um, you know, merchants. It lied geographically on the uh, main road connecting Damascus to Cairo. Um, if you read the sources, the uh, geographical treatises, people like uh, Ibn Ahmed al-Maqdisi or al-Muqaddisi, the famous 10th century geographer, he describes Ramla as an incredibly uh, um, uh, fertile region. Uh, olive groves, de, uh, uh, you know, Paul, um, all kinds of crops being grown in the region, you know, wheat, barley, vegetables, uh, all the legumes, right? So an incredibly fertile region with a hinterland uh, connecting Damascus to Cairo. Um, by the way, also connecting Jerusalem to Jaffa. So it sits right in the middle of those uh, kind of really the, the geographical center of Palestine. And so as a result of its importance in the early Islamic period, it gets associated with the word Palestine. So what you have is over the course of the uh, really throughout all of Islam, uh, all of Islamic history, you have many, many uh, dozen. I, I want to say probably between one to two dozen sources, maybe three, maybe as many as three dozen sources conflating the city of Ramle with the word Palestine. So they'll say, you know, Medina, uh, Philistine, Yani, Ramle. They'll say like the city of Palestine, in other words, Ramle. And you have dozens of those sources, not just Muslim sources. You even have a Jewish source. You have Christian sources. And then on top of that, you have Christians as well as Jews, as well as Muslims who are from Ramle and are using the term Palestine as a matter of course in the 15th century. So for example, you have a tombstone from inside a mosque in the 15th century in Ramle that says, you know, uh, Palestine. Now find me another tombstone anywhere in in the entire uh, region of Palestine from the 15th century that has the word Philistine on the tombstone. Only Rumle will you find that in the 15th century. Now go to the 16th century and 17th century. You have Khairuddin uh, Ramli, the one of the most important muftis in the entire Ottoman period. He is using the word Palestine as a matter of course. You have Najmuddin, his son, who writes a um he, he he writes a biographical dictionary in this in the 17th century. We're talking 1670s, I believe, where he's using the term Palestine as a matter of course. So not only do you have a Palestine a Ramle being the capital of Palestine, the geographical, economic, and political center of Palestine for 400 years, not only do you have dozens of people conflating the words Ramle and Palestine. In addition to that, you have many, many people from Ramle using the term Palestine to refer to not the city 
uh, of Ramla, but a, a broader region, um, uh, you know, basically the region of Palestine that you and I and many other people know today. And so for, for, for all of these reasons, I think there's a very interesting history, a mostly, by the way, forgotten history that I think almost no one was really aware of, ri- literally almost nobody. I mean, by the way, I was unaware of it too, and I'm writing a dissertation about the word Palestine. It took me, the person who's supposed to be the expert on this topic, digging through many, many different centuries of sources, digging through many, many different languages of sources, European languages, Arabic, Hebrew, Ottoman Turkish, in many, many different types of sources, Sharia court records, travel logs, um, you know, uh, 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 history books, chronicles, Geniza records, okay? So you have across many languages, many sources, many time periods, multiple and fascinating associations between Ramla and Palestine that have been mostly forgotten today. Let me take you to Gaza now. So you recently acquired, as you say, uh, more than 600 documents on the history of Gaza, covering from the 1910s to the 1960s. Is the beginning of a new project or you're just uh, collecting material? For many years now, it has occurred to me that There is a dearth of materials to study the history of Palestine and the Palestinians, especially if you are Palestinian. I mean, that's the great irony of it all. If you're from Gaza, if you're from the West Bank, guess guess what? You don't have access to the research, to, to the sources of your own people's history. And by the way, that's not a coincidence. That is intentional. That is a direct result of the military application, uh, excuse me, the military occupation in the case of the West Bank, and is a direct result of the siege in the case of Gaza. And so to to my mind, this is just incredibly frustrating. You have a collection of 60,000 records that, that lie in the Israeli National Archives sitting in the Hebrew National Library in Givat Ram, uh, in in Israel, these are ab- the, the quote unquote abandoned books. Okay, sixty thousand of these records that were taken from the homes of Palestinians. They were taken from the homes in 1948, and they were collected, and they were cataloged. They were cataloged, and they were made available to Israelis and to internationals, but not Palestinians. And that was honestly totally enraging to me. And especially as a person who was benefiting from those documents, whose research was fundamentally dependent on that corpus of of materials that was made available to me. Why me? Because I was privileged, because I had access. And so I felt this need, I felt this urge to like, do something. And so I started uploading maps over, that I had collected over the years, maps of Palestine and maps of the Middle East that were rare, that were hard to find, that I had scanned for my own research purposes, but wanted to make available to everyone, especially Palestinians who were denied it. And, and I've recently been expanding that collection. And so um, have just been going around uh, looking for documents, to be totally honest with you, <laughs> looking for maps, looking for manuscripts, trying to find stuff that um, I can share with the world and especially share with uh, the people, the Palestinian people who have been denied access owing to their status as Palestinians, as occupied and oppressed peoples. And so I had an opportunity to visit uh, Gaza and uh, manage to, um, by the way, it's uh, it's not free to buy those documents. So I was able to, you know, God bless, I um, ha- was able to buy many uh, hundreds of documents from the, the only antique dealer in Gaza. And I've digitized them all, and I've made them available to whoever wants to study the history of Gaza. And so you have many hundreds and hundreds of documents in those collections. These are personal letters 
They're private documents. They were owned by many different families of Gaza. They, over the course of the past however many decades, Salim al-Rais, the, the, the antique dealer who is, by the way, um, one of the friendliest, nicest, sweetest people you'll ever meet in the entire world. And uh, he has this incredible uh, antique store with some of the most incredible books and documents and pamphlets from, oh my God, uh, uh, I can't even tell you God, if I uh, was a rich man and money was not an, a thing and I had duffels of suitcases that I could have taken out with me, which I was not able to, I would have bought 10 times as much as I bought. But um, but yeah, just incredible, incredible stuff there. I mean, letters, uh, you know, uh, you know, Palestine uh, writing a letter in 1925 from, you know, one member of a family to another about personal matters related to, you know, um, divorce and love and marriage, just, just incredibly personal stuff that honestly, you'll never like, those are one of one documents, you just can't find that stuff anywhere else. Um, lots of merchant records, um, you know, uh, the private papers of merchants. So if you're interested in economic history of Gaza, that this is a very, very rich source. If you're interested in the social history, like I was saying, you know, uh, marriage and divorce, um, personal matters, this is a very, very interesting collection. Um, political issues, obviously. How can you uh, talk about the history of there's a lot of stuff from 1948, by the way. Uh, during the war years. So if you're a historian of the 1948 war, you're going to find a lot of very, very interesting documents, why people left, what led to the cause of fighting in Gaza. So there's all kinds of fascinating documents that, again, I haven't actually had a chance to really in detail go through them, uh, but um, I would, would encourage anybody uh, to, to have a look at that stuff. And it's all available on, uh, on my website, palestinenexus.com. You can go check them out. And um, and I would, would encourage and welcome anyone who wants to download them, research them, share them. You're, you're, you're very welcome and very invited to do that. This was Zachary Foster, a scholar of Palestine and also director of product at academia.edu. Thank you so much for this engaging conversation. And I will definitely post uh, in the notes of the show your website so that uh, people and listeners can actually access the material and also get a different story coming out of Gaza and not the usual one as portrayed by the uh, media. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.